Welcome to Life-Altering Events with Frank Zakari. When something positive or negative changes in our lives, we are basically at a fork in the road. Where does the next step take us? What do we do as reactions to something that has already happened? How do we prevent the negative aspects from happening again? Whether in business or personal parts of your life, you can get back on track. We'll talk about it today. Now, here is your host, Frank Zakari. Good morning, and I hope everyone's having a wonderful Tuesday. My name is Frank Zakari, and you're listening to Life Altering Events on the Voice America Empowerment Channel. Now, people have asked me since we started this show, you know, Frank, what, what exactly is a life altering event? And this is what I tell them. A life altering event is something we can either choose or something that's thrust upon us. What life-altering events do present us with is an opportunity to seize the moment and make a difference in our life and in the lives of our loved ones. They're also a fork in the road where we have a choice. Now, we can choose to fall apart, or we can choose to find the courage, pick up the pieces, deal with our grief, and start moving forward toward better times and better people. Always remember this. It is never too late to have the life that you want and you deserve. As you listen to this show over the coming weeks and months and hopefully years, I urge you to think about participating in an upcoming show. If you have a life-altering event that could inspire others, visit the life-altering event page on voiceamerica.com, click on email the host, and tell me about it. Tell me about this event that so drastically altered your life. How did you address it, and where are you now? We'll review the content, and if it fits well into the program, we'll contact you about using it in a future broadcast. We look forward for hearing your story. So let's talk about it. Today, one of the life-altering events we deal with is attempting to achieve and sustain long-term success. Now, I've dealt in business for 30-plus years as a a business owner, executive, and and a consultant advisor, and I've often heard many business experts discuss how leadership methods and business principles in one area or one industry simply don't apply to another one. They've argued, I've heard this argument over and over. They say, Frank, I'm a nonprofit. The guidelines used for profit companies simply don't apply. And then another one that I love is, My industry is so unique that I have to come up with my own set of guidelines. Now, when I hear this, I try to to take a deep breath and say, well, I must respectfully disagree. While the industries or the business may differ in what they do, good business practices work across all industries. After 30 years as a business owner and executive, I come to the realization that similarities between organizations in crisis are strikingly similar. It doesn't matter if it's a profit business, government, nonprofit, education system, a church, or even an athletic program. The common thread for all these organizations in crisis is they're failing and they're unwilling or unable to make adjustments or try a new approach. Most become very defensive when a new person comes in and tries to initiate change. What what I've heard more times than not is the majority of the current staff says, hey, we're open to hearing about your new plan, but 
very rarely do they make an effort to help execute that plan. They'd rather pay lip service to the plan and stand on the sidelines and watch it fail. Then they can say, hey, I knew it wasn't going to work. The bottom line for organization in crisis is this. What you're doing and the way you're doing it is not working. This is why new people are brought into your organization. So the question today, can you move your organization from good to great? Do you want to be a world-class organization? Do you have the tenacity and the passion to become great? Now, most people talk about it, but they aren't willing to do what it takes. Very few people achieve or, or organizations achieve greatness. Now, there are people who talk about it. There are people who write books about it. And there are people who do academic studies about how to achieve greatness. And then there are people like my guest today who actually build, achieve, and sustain greatness repeatedly. My guest today is my good friend, Jim McLaughlin, who knows exactly what it takes to build a championship organization. Now, he's the only person to ever win the national championship in women's volleyball, excuse me, in volleyball with a men's program at University of Southern California and with a women's program at the University of Washington. Now, before you say, God, this show is about volleyball. No, it's not. This show is about organizational development. It's about team building. It's about building an organization that is successful, reaches the top, and sustains it. You want some proof? Here's some proof. In 14 years at the University of Washington, his winning percentage was just below 80%. Okay? Now, think about that. How many times, if you look at the decisions you've made and, and projects you've initiated, how many times have they been, eight out of ten times have they been successful? In his organization, he develops people. He had 31 All-Americans. 50, 50 of these young ladies were academic all-conference honorees. That means that they had a grade point average higher than 3.25. 24 played professionally. He went to 13 straight, 13 straight NCAA tournaments. That is like the epitome of success. He has two of his players have silver and bronze Olympic medals. They went to four Final Fours and one national championship. That was his team operation success. Jim personally in 2004 was named the NCAA Coach of the Year, and he received in 2002, four and five, and again in 2013, the Pac-12 Coach of the Year Awards. Jim, welcome to Life Altering Events. I appreciate it, Frank, and you know, you know, I always enjoyed our talks, and I really look forward to this one. Now, Jim, you were you were a national championship coach, and you had seven good years with the USC men's program. Now, why did you leave men's volleyball to coach women's volleyball? Well, Frank, to be honest with you, I, it had to do with money. You know, let me explain that to you because I never got into coaching because of money. But as Title IX and the gender equity laws started to take effect, uh, athletic departments began allocating more money into the women's sports, you know, more scholarships, bigger budgets, higher salaries for coaches. And I was beginning to... Uh, put in a lot of hours. Um, I was beginning to understand the grind 
it would take to be successful in a very competitive environment, uh, such as coaching. And so I could stay in the men's game, which was considered a minor sport, or I could get into the women's game, which is considered a major sport, and be compensated just at a higher level for doing the same job. Mm-hmm. And what it really did, Frank, is it, it was the same job. Uh, I had to learn that. But it allowed Margaret to be with our three daughters when I was on the road every weekend. And so uh, I'm glad I made the change. When, when you started this, when you moved to, from men's to women, we hear all kinds of different biases. Uh, one, one thing I've heard is you can't teach the women the men's game. They aren't big enough. They aren't strong enough. What did, what did you say when you heard those statements? Well, I heard all those things, and everybody in volleyball told me not to do it because of those reasons. Um, you know, they said it's a different game. Uh, the change would be too big. Uh, they said, you, I wouldn't like coaching women. Um, I think it was my dad that told me, hey, just do your homework. You know, do some research. Figure out what's right for you and your family. And uh and then he'd say, be careful who you listen to, which became a big part of what I believe today. Uh, you know, surround yourself with good people, but they better be the right people. But I also believed, or I had this idea, and you and I have talked about this, you know, we can have our wonderful ideas and these intuitions, but we've got to test them. And we've got to make sure, but I believed, or I thought that volleyball wasn't gender specific. I I really believe volleyball is volleyball, and the game is the game. Now, uh, there are subtle variations between the men's game and the women's game, and that could be a whole different uh, topic. But uh, the movements are the same. You know, the eye work is the same. In fact, what you look at, Frank, is exactly the same in both the men's and the women's game. I found that women can work extremely hard, as hard as men. I found that women can compete at the highest degree. Uh, They can be strong leaders. They can be powerful. And I also found that when studying the nuances, the timing, that because of those factors, women can play as fast as as men. Now, maybe in the action-reaction format, a man, that the men will respond faster and cover more ground than women will. But so that's a variation. But what I found was my methods would be very similar. Maybe I would talk to women differently than I talked to men. Maybe I would show film a little different to women than I did uh, with men. But the ways I coach were fairly the same. One of the statements that uh, th- that I that I made when someone said that to me about uh, you know, Jim going to the versus men versus women was that playing against men. So what difference does it make? Yep. The, the game is the game. So it was a little bit of a challenge uh, trying to move out of the men's program into the women's program. And your first uh, your first women's program was at Kansas State. Now this is in Manhattan, Kansas. For those of you listening around the world. Manhattan, Kansas, not exactly a hotbed for volleyball. Yet, you led this program to the Sweet 16. Now, what were the keys in turning around a program like this? Well, it was a lot of hard work. Um, you know, and then you have to do things right. There's more people that work hard in this world than, 
you know, really get things done and, and do the right things. But it all started with my boss, Max Urich. Uh, he was critical to our success. Uh, he was the leader of our program, of the athletic program, and he understood a lot of things. He trusted me. I believed in him. Uh, he was an assistant football coach for Woody Hayes back early in his career, so he understood coaching, and he understood competing, he understood winning. And he had some huge responsibilities, you know. He had to make sure that football was good and men's basketball because they brought in all the money for the department, but he had a true, uh, I don't know, he wanted to make sure we kicked butt in volleyball. And he helped me and he helped us in many ways, specifically uh, increase some resources and things like that. But maybe the most important thing he did, Frank, that great leaders do, is he would come into my office every three weeks, maybe every month, and he would just ask me how I was doing. And he would ask me what he could do to allow me to coach the kids better. And you know, uh, because you helped me so much, most volleyball programs have limitations financially. And those extra dollars can be, you know, you can dot the I's and cross the T's at a higher level. And so he had those limitations, but he did everything he could to help us, and I appreciated that. And then he'd even do little things uh, that were so important, like he'd send me a note after a loss and tell me to keep doing what I was doing. And he'd always say, Jim, put your signature on this program. And it was a neat way to say, give me good feedback that I believe in you. And I wanted to be really good because of him, and I didn't want to let him down. And uh, and then after that, you know, everything starts with player development, and we invested in the players, and that's how you start to build a program. And I still believe today that improvement of a team goes through the improvement of the individual game. It does not go through tactics. It doesn't go through anything but the individuals on your team, and if your team, if your players become better individually, then it's much easier to play better volleyball as a team. And I'll tell you this, Frank, that we got a little better every day, every week, every month, every year. And Kansas State was it was a lot of fun. It was hard, but it was wonderful. You made a great point there, Jim. That if to be successful, there has to be support from the top, You'd be it a board of directors, be it a chairman, or be it, in your case, an athletic director. And that, that sets the tone and allows you to do what you needed to do. Is that right? For sure. And, you know, unfortunately, in this business, I, I know a lot of coaches that are excellent. But they're not given the opportunity to be successful. They're not given the opportunity to... Uh, be who they are and influence. They're not given the trust. Uh, and it, you, it's hard to operate in those conditions. And, uh, and I'm thankful that I've had people like Max and, uh, that really allowed me to grow as a coach. And, and they also cared about me, which, you know, is, is what a leader does. Your next stop was the University of Washington. And this was in Seattle. And again, this is not exactly a hotbed for volleyball. 
Now, I heard statements made when you arrived at the University of Washington program, it was basically the Titanic after it hit the iceberg. So why did you take this job? Well, I, again, uh, a lot of people said don't do it. In fact, Frank, I remember, and it made me a little nervous, people telling me, Jim, you're not going to win a game, let alone a match. And But then, you know, the relationship I had with Barbara Hedges, who was the AD, um, that, that's why I went there. Um, she hired me twice, and she believed in me twice. And she had a very positive presence. Uh, there was a confidence about her. Um, even when we lost, and I remember her telling me before matches, it was a funny little thing. She'd always tell me, hey, Jim, the champagne's on ice. And uh, it was just her way of saying, we're going to win. And, and then every once in a while, she'd send me a text like Max did. And she never sent it during the season. Uh, she knew we were busy, and she left me alone. But she would occasionally send me stuff. Uh, you know, and she was busy. She had to worry about football and basketball and all that stuff. But she would send me a text and say, well, are you free for dinner? And then she and John, her husband, would come over to our house. And the first thing she would ask me when she sat down was, how are you doing? And then she would always tell me, Jim, I worry about you because you get very into this job. But I'll tell you what, Frank, you know, when we got it going, she was so happy and uh and then, you know, I had Todd Turner, who was awesome, and, you know, he's now running a major company. I had Scott Woodward, who was awesome, and he's the AD at LSU. So those guys were really supportive, and, and they allowed me to be good and, uh, and to work hard. But to answer your question, I, you know, I was in New Jersey doing a coaching clinic with Carl McGowan, and Barbara called me, and... Uh, and Carl tapped me on the shoulder and just said, tell her to call you back. And in just a little 10-minute drive, just this little 10-minute drive, he told me, you know, you put the W on and you do things the way you can do things. You're going to win big at UW. And, and I'm thinking, Frank, you know, in my mind, wait, only nine programs have ever won a national title. So my mindset at the time was maybe it's too hard, maybe it's impossible for a program that's never won a championship to win a championship. And so I learned that lesson that, you know, your, your thoughts can limit you just as players, as coaches, as people. And he was a mentor. He believed in me and uh, I listened to him and uh, Margaret and I packed up Megan and Molly and we went to Seattle and that's where Merritt came into the world. And we just got to work and you know, the work we did because you were doing it with us. And uh, we turn that thing. We're up against the break here. So um, don't go away. We're going to take a short break. We're going to continue back with Jim McLaughlin. We're going to get into how he built these these very high uh, attaining, high achieving and championship programs and then sustain that level. Don't go away. You don't want to miss this next segment. what makes the most successful people tick keep listening to the voice america empowerment channel VoiceAmericaEmpowerment.com. book frank zakari as the motivational speaker at your next event frank is a dynamic entertaining and fascinating storyteller your organization will be entertained and will learn stories of success they can implement immediately 
Email Frank today to secure him for your next event at lifealteringeventsradio at gmail.com or call 916-718-5517. Mention that you heard about it from the Life Altering Events radio program. You can also visit Frank's website for more information at frankzakari.com. Frank Sakari has written five books spanning a range of life-altering events and how to handle them. When the Wife Cheats is about a man with two young daughters handling the devastating loss of a cheating wife. Inside the Spaghetti Bowl is about how one family stays together through both good and bad. Five Years to Live follows a couple through life after a tragic accident, recovery, and prognosis. From the Ashes is a turnaround management success story about the University of Washington volleyball team. Find the books at Amazon in print, audio, and Kindle formats and at frankzakari.com. Multiple studies show us that the vast majority of people are disengaged at work. A Gallup report stated that two-thirds of American workers are unhappy and 15% actually hate their work. That means that 81% are not engaged to work for a common goal. Frank Sakari and his team have programs to help you change this dynamic and create a collaborative and high-performing organization. Visit frankzakari.com to set up an initial consultation today. Find out what makes the most successful people tick. Keep listening to the Voice America Empowerment Channel. VoiceAmericaEmpowerment.com You are listening to Life Altering Events with Frank Sakari. To call into the program today with questions or comments, please call 1 888 346 9141. That's 1 888 346 9141. Or you can send an email to lifealteringeventsradio at gmail.com. Now, back to the show. Welcome back. You're listening to Life Altering Events on the Voice America Empowerment Channel, and my name is Frank Zakari. My guest today is Jim McLaughlin. He's the only individual to have won a national championship in volleyball with both a men's program and a women's program. And Jim was just talking about moving and uh, taking over uh, two organizations that were very that were struggling tremendously: Kansas State in Manhattan, Kansas, and the University of Washington. We're going to continue on with that move at the University of Washington. Jim, when you walked in there to that to that school, I was already there, and it, it was a toxic culture, very toxic. And I remember a statement that you made is that within five years, we're going, to, we're going to win a national title. And in those five years, you went to three consecutive Final Fours and actually won the national title. Now, I've heard you say, over and over, that that coaches and leaders have blind spots, that they surround themselves with clones, they surround themselves with yes men, they surround themselves with people who say what they want them to say, as opposed to building an organization that that excelled for over 14 years. How did you do that? Well, for sure, I had some blind spots, and I had to see things accurately, uh, and so, I, you know, like with any team, I think it's really important, Frank, that the team develops an identity. And, and first we had to understand who we were and where we were at and where we wanted to become. And that's a huge challenge um, each year from a coaching standpoint. And, uh, and then we had to earn the respect of the players. I mean, we were the new kids on the block, and, you know, they had been there. And, 
And then we had to get their trust and we had to get them all to buy in. And then it, it slowly evolves into we got to get them to take ownership and become accountable to do the things that we have to do to establish this identity. And I always wanted to have an identity of being a very difficult team to play against because we could execute at a high level and we could play with mental and physical toughness and we could learn to how to really battle and enjoy it and play loose and finish games. And uh, I think one of the reasons we were so successful at UW was we created a culture of accountability and responsibility. And then it started to come from the players and they took on the expectations we presented them. Um, and they became a lot more responsible in terms of discipline. But it always starts, Frank, and you were there, it, with how you practice and how you prepare every day. And, and we had to teach them and we had to train them to increase their awareness and see things correctly like you're talking about uh, and have an understanding, a higher understanding of everything we did and it had to become important to them and then their ability to concentrate on the right things. And it's hard um, for each player to understand that. Um, some get it a little faster, but there's a, a standard of performance that you have to train at. There's a reality that you have to train at and then play at. And, and then we were surrounded by a number of very good people like you, like the academic people. I mean, we had tremendous resources, and, and we had to learn how to take advantage of that. And I learned a lot about that from you. And then we got the girls to be a little more responsible for their own self-determination and their self-regulation, which is what separates people often. Um, and, you know, and that's what being a professional in anything is. And, and that's all about the challenges of, again, preparation. But we had some challenges. Um, you know, you can't overwhelm your players. However, um, it's important that your your players learn how to compete. That was the most important thing to me, more than mechanics, more than anything. The lesson I wanted them to take away was that we had to compete. And I have found in my career, that's the most challenging part of coaching, that mentality, that mindset, getting people to truly compete, getting people to truly be committed to the commitment level that is necessary to, to win at a very high level. And there's always a point, Frank, I remember sitting down with you in my office where when you establish these standards and you have these expectations, if you're not winning right away, which is, uh, you know, it's not magic. It takes time to get these things in place. Sometimes the group can go a different way instead of becoming a team and, and they become more social. They they, they want to feel more comfortable and they want to feel good about themselves, you know, when they're not winning um, instead of working hard and making progress and climbing this steep mountain. And so the hard work, the gratification that we started to experience, uh, the return we started to receive from working together with great effort, great energy, uh, tremendous discipline, it, it's really hard and it's sometimes too hard for some people. And uh, I've told my own daughters that. Um, so, you know, they'll look for ways to be comfortable and then they fall apart as a team. But we hung in there and we kept fighting hard. And 
and they got more comfortable being on the edge of their ability and maybe dealing with the discomfort of and the frustration of achieving. And so the reward is so much greater and you learn that and then you remember all these lessons for the rest of your life and I've always told them it's all worth it. It's just hard to put into words the gratification and return. But you've got to invest over time to find out and then you've got to become a great team and get the vibe right and it's just a massive challenge. But it's very special and it really begins one player at a time. I hear people talk about culture. I hear talk about core values. And, and I've seen teams that have a pretty good culture, but they're not winning. And they're getting their butt kicked. So, you know, is that what you're looking for? And uh, it's a very gradual process. You know, I remember I leaned on you quite a bit. And I remember you kicking me in the butt, too, uh, and you got to celebrate these little successes along the way. And then eventually everybody gets on the same page and people start understanding the right way to do things. But there were individuals early on that, uh, you know, maybe they wanted to do it a different way. And that can become a problem. And if it becomes a problem in terms of attitude and character, then it becomes really difficult for everybody. And sometimes those players are really, really good players. And as a coach, you know, if you can help them and, and get them to figure it out, they can really help the team. But as good as they are, if they don't change that behavior, it holds the team back in, in any type of team. So you got to make a change for the good of the team because their damage outweighs their ability. And uh, so that's, one reason coaching at a high level is really, really hard, and you got to have a great staff, and uh, and you got so many things to get in place. But but it was worth it again in the end. Now, for those of you that are listening that are in the business world or in the nonprofit world or an organizational world, just substitute everything Jim said about player with employee or staff. These are principles that apply across every discipline and every type of organization. Now, Jim, I've heard you say hundreds of times to your teams not to worry or compare themselves to what other people are doing, which is tends, tends to happen when you're struggling. I've heard you say we can only control what we can do and how we do it. The goal is to focus on us and improve every day. Now, you're talking about people 18 to 22. How do you get them to buy into this model? Well, it's human nature to look across the other side and compare to people. And comparisons never serve you well in any way, shape, or form. And you don't control those things. Um, You know, I think our calling is to max out, you know, be the best you can be. But very few people do that because it's so hard. But my job, I always felt my job as a coach wasn't to create new ways of doing things or to create new systems, but my job was to find ways to train the things that I wanted the players to do and have them become more proficient and efficient at being able to repeat those things over and over and over. And that, Frank, was the most important thing a leader can do uh, in terms of athletics, and you know, maybe the most important thing is you got to recruit because you know if you recruit good players, you're going to be all right. But if you recruit good players and teach them, 
you, you can go to a lot of Final Fours and stuff. So my job was to increase awareness, awareness generally and then specifically in the moment of learning. And, you know, Frank, I, you remember, I, I, people would see us play or they'd read an article and they think they know what we do, and they don't. But I wanted my players to know. And then knowing is the easy part. Doing is the hard part. We must go do these things. But it, it, as we started doing things, it all started with the foundation of fundamentals, the improvement of fundamentals. And that was the foundation of our program. And every player has to learn how to learn. They have to learn how to make progress. There's a lot to that. And then once you do that, improvement can become addictive and people want more and more and more. And if I could get the players comfortable with the basics, just the basic fundamentals, then they could learn to adapt to the situations of the game. They would learn to adjust and make better plays. So I framed it a little different uh, than other coaches, but we talked uh, about some specific things. There were just three things. And, uh, you know, we, I asked them, what is winning? And this is the only time I ever talked about winning. I asked them, what is winning? And I just wanted to understand how fragile it is. It wasn't like what the boosters think and people take it for granted. People that understand success at the highest level understand how fragile it is. So there were three phases. You just can't go out and beat UCLA, SC, Stanford. You've got to prepare. The number one thing was just making changes individually. You know, gradual improvement. You start making changes, overcoming weaknesses. I felt like we were starting the process of winning. If you weren't, we were standing still. And you can't stand still. There's too many people that are running hard, but they're not moving anywhere. And you got to move forward every day. Make little changes. Little tiny things. Put value in these small things. And then you can do the big things. And that was the foundation. And that was the deal. And we had foundational players like Sonia and Crystal Morrison and Courtney, and, and they could play the game because they were sound fundamentally. And then the second thing is a little harder, but maybe this applies even more to you and business. Um, you know, we had to learn how to solve problems and together as a team. Um, the problem with problems is people look at problems and say, oh, we got I got a problem that's going to hold me back. Well, in some aspects of coaching, coaching, you have to like solving problems, and you have to get your players to like solving problems because when you play on Saturday, the opponent is going to try to cause problems for you. The game causes problems, and it's how you respond to these situations and problems that separate people. Um, it's exactly like you said in your opening. Do you hang your head? Do you pout? Do you, no, there's no, oh, well, me. i got to solve the problem. And if we do that, then we can learn how to solve problems on game day. And then the third thing was you got to learn how to make plays. Uh, and I called it developing toughness, uh, you know, just mentally. you got to get things done. Um, and you got to understand that, uh, you know, people in life, if you're good at something and you do your job well, you're okay. But not in sports. You can play well and get your butt beat you got to make plays and you got to learn how to one play could define the match and you got to play one play like it has the life of its own. And that's not human nature, but 
you know, we had people like Crystal Morrison that she was the nicest kid in the world, but she was, she, no one knew how tough she was. I mean, no one know, knew that, you know, I, the media didn't know. She had a, a torn meniscus. She had a f- stress fracture in her foot. I wanted to bench her and let her heal. And I remember meeting with her mom and dad and Chris, she, Jim, I'm going to play. And then the doctor said, you can't further the injury. I, I just, what that kid went through and her level of toughness, she was phenomenal. And yet she was the most positive girl I ever coached. And, you know, we had people like that and she thrived in that environment. So Winning is hard, but Crystal Morrison embraced it, and so did all these other girls, Darla Myrie and Court. Court was never afraid of anything. <laughs> and so, uh, you know, it was just fun being around them. One of the things that, as uh, when I was a CEO and an executive, and I saw it with your teams, was when the players start saying to each other or your employees start saying to each other the things that you've been saying to them. And that was incredibly impressive because you're talking about millennials. These are 18 to 22-year-olds. And they started to see and believe and to trust. And then once that trust occurred, things started to take off. And they, and you could see it on the court. That Courtney would set somebody and they would make a, a a, a poor play and she didn't have to say a word she just looked at him and then she would go right back to that person again and then they would make that play so that that trust that you were able to build was critical it's absolutely critical now in your 14 years at university of washington you built as we're talking we're going to wait, wait a minute we're up against a break here let's take a break at this point and then we'll come into this uh this next section because it's going to, we're going to have to elaborate a little bit more So uh, don't go away. We're talking with Jim McLaughlin. This is an incredibly informative information that applies across not just athletics, but any kind of organization that you can imagine. Stay with us. You do not want to miss this next segment. up to your fullest potential. This is the Voice America Empowerment Channel. Book Frank Zakari as the motivational speaker at your next event. Frank is a dynamic, entertaining, and fascinating storyteller. Your organization will be entertained and will learn stories of success they can implement immediately. Email Frank today to secure him for your next event at lifealteringeventsradio at gmail.com or call 916-718-5517. Mention that you heard about it from the Life Altering Events radio program. You can also visit Frank's website for more information at frankzakari.com. Frank Zakari has written five books spanning a range of life-altering events and how to handle them. When the Wife Cheats is about a man with two young daughters handling the devastating loss of a cheating wife. Inside the Spaghetti Bowl is about how one family stays together through both good and bad. Five Years to Live follows a couple through life after a tragic accident, recovery, and prognosis. From the Ashes is a turnaround management success story about the University of Washington volleyball team. 
Find the books at Amazon in print, audio, and Kindle formats and at frankzakari.com. Multiple studies show us that the vast majority of people are disengaged at work. A Gallup report stated that two-thirds of American workers are unhappy and 15% actually hate their work. That means that 81% are not engaged to work for a common goal. Frank Zakari and his team have programs to help you change this dynamic and create a collaborative and high-performing organization. Visit frankzakari.com to set up an initial consultation today. Live up to your fullest potential. This is the Voice America Empowerment Channel. You are listening to Life-Altering Events with Frank Zakari. To call into the program today with questions or comments, please call 1-888-346-9141. That's 1-888-346-9141. Or you can send an email to lifealteringeventsradio at gmail.com. Now, back to the show. Well, welcome back. You're listening to Life-Altering Events. I am Frank Sakari, and my guest is Jim McLaughlin, and we are having a fascinating conversation, which most people might think revolves around volleyball, but if you simply remove the term player and put in employee or put in staff or put in organization, you will see that what Jim is talking about applies across any organization and any entity and any industry. Now, Jim... One of the current business leadership models, this is the new hot business model, is collaborative culture based on trust and honesty and frequent feedback. Now, what's amazing to me is you were doing this 20 years ago with millennials. I hear this all the time. Millennials don't listen. Millennials don't want to do it. Millennials don't have any drive. Yet you created this. How did you do this? How did you create this competitive fire and this and this want to? Well, um, I studied a lot of coaches, and what I saw and what I had to learn is that feedback's important, maybe the single most important element in learning. So the coach has to give very meaningful, very good feedback. And I also saw on the other side of it that the greatest players wanted all forms of feedback, and they wanted it very often. So, you know, the most important part, and then you develop a loop where the kids are talking to you, a feedback loop, um, the most important part is you got to be honest and, you know, the truth hurts, but people handle it and, and the kids know. And so honesty is a big part of the conditions, but then you got to develop these conditions, this environment that the, every coach has to create. And it was something that the better coaches did. Uh, you know, you have to set some expectations and I hear all the time that, you know, you get what you deserve. Well, that's true to some extent, but you also get what you expect. And as they got better, I wanted them to grab onto the expectations, and they did. They became more comfortable with what we were talking about doing. And having high expectations is maybe the beginning and of what you want to accomplish and what you want to achieve, and it becomes very important. But if you study success and you study conditions and uh, you, you see it's about these conditions with great leadership. It's not so much this genetic makeup. Uh, you know, people can be successful, but what I saw in the conditions, Frank, that I wanted to make sure we had the best conditions for learning was good feedback, you know, that feedback loop. I wanted to, the conditions to allow people to grow and not limit their growth. And the environment 
can contribute to that. You can limit people in the in the wrong environment. Uh, better self awareness because what you're really doing is you're learning about yourself, and you want to learn more about yourself, your strengths, your weaknesses, how you think, uh, your emotions. Your focus and energy is is a critical part of these conditions. Uh, you know, do your thoughts are tools. Do they serve you well? And, you know, I hear it all the time. The average person thinks 60,000 thoughts a day and 90% of them are negative. You can't live like that. You can't train like that. You can't be like that. And then you got to have conditions that develop the mind in terms of mental toughness. This is the mind is the athlete. The body is simply the means so really, the mind separates people, and then you got to have good activities that have a great amount of transfer, and you got to increase awareness, especially in the moment of learning. And then I think the deal is pushing limits. You got to push people, and people want to be pushed. And when you push them the right way, they have a they they know you believe in them. But you also have to have a safe environment where people aren't afraid when you're pushing them and you're keeping them on the edge of their ability. They're not afraid to ask for help. And so that's really important. And then the respect and trust come. Uh, that's got to be part, and you're looking for that. And then you got to compete, and you got to develop that toughness we talk about. So uh, that's the most important thing to me. Now, in 14 years at Washington, you won a national title. You went to four Final Fours. And during that window of time, University of Washington was in every conversation for the national title for 13 of the 14 years that you were there. Now, once you climb the mountain and you've achieved this great success, how do you sustain that, particularly when people are graduating? You have higher turnover in an athletic program than you do in most businesses. How do you sustain that? Well, just stay true to who you are, you know, stay true to your core values. We were very proud of who we were, uh, and we understood it wasn't magic. You know, we had to prove ourselves every day, and and then I always felt, I just got to keep finding the people that embraced these demands of achievement and uh, and really wanted to compete, you know, and, uh, and I would often tell recruits, you know, maybe this will be too hard for you, and, and then you find out if they really want it in, but I remember, you know, court and crystal and just how they responded to that and I wanted to coach them more than anybody you know Kai Munoz Jenna Haglin Katie Beals Sonia Liana Sabeldin was uh, maybe I pushed her a little too hard uh, you know and I've thought about that but she's one of the greatest uh, middles to ever play at Washington and she was an unbelievable person Um and she reminded me of Jesse Swarbrick, who is the, she leads that whole program in hitting efficiency. And, uh, you know, there's not, I've never met anybody like Jesse. I mean, she's just a phenomenal uh, young lady, you know. And then Mel Wade, I remember talking to her coach uh, and saying she doesn't work hard enough. And then she changed, and that girl maxed out. Um, you know, she was just, what a student of the game and really maxed out and starlight. I don't know. I could go on and on. There was, there were, there were so many um, players that came in and you saw a, and this is goes in the business world. When someone comes in the door, do they leave and be developed beyond what they thought they could even become? And this is what was happening here. I've heard you say 
And, and this the first time I heard it, I went, what? what are you talking about? To become elite, you have to understand what it's like to lose. Okay, what do you mean by that? Well, I mean, if you and I go into a bookstore and you're in there, you see all these books on winning and success and all this stuff. And half these people have never even, they just, it's their opinions and it's not facts. And it's, you know, but I think, you know, when you lose, uh, you become a little bit more introspective and you want to try and figure it out because it's not fun. It's, it stinks. And uh, it gives you a sick feeling, um, to be honest with you. But by losing, you clearly understand how fragile winning is. And I think you understand what, if you can understand what causes losing, then you can start to work on what winning is all about. So, I don't know, I'm looking for that book in the bookstore that's all about losing, you know. <laughs> and, uh, and, and then I think we'd find out about winning, but uh, that's basically it. One area where coaches and, and uh, business leaders fail is in their inability to make adjustments or adapt. Now, I work with a number of organizations, and they, they have a good plan. They have a strategy. They have tactics. They say, this is our best practice. And then they get out there, and life hits them in the face. And it's not going the way it wants to, and they yet they continue to ride that, what they deem is their best practice. Now, you were a master at making adjustments in real time. What, did you, what do you see that tells you it's time to make a change? Uh, you know, I'm just paying attention. As you learn to see things better, you see more things. Um, but I also had people around me that saw things a little different than me, and I would run things by them and, and listen to them. Uh, Leslie, too, Alsopa was the absolute best at it. And, uh, and so I relied heavily on, on what she told me, and I, I believed in her because I knew uh, all of her intentions were wonderful. And then she's one of those people that, uh, you know, we judge ourselves by our own intentions, but others judge us by how, um, how they treat us. And so, uh, you know, you're just looking for things. But for me, everything happens uh, in practice. Everything that happens in a game is going to happen in practice, everything. And so it starts with the practice and preparation, and you start to become more aware um, and then, uh, you know, adaptability is big. I added, I had seven tenets to my philosophy and I adapted it because you've got to adapt with the, the kids are a little different. The parents are different. You, you, you got to adapt maybe one day on how you say things to kids and, and try to find the little things that help them learn. Cause all those little things are different within people. Um, but you know, in terms of, systems and stuff, everything we did in practice, they were all encompassing and we were prepared to make these little adjustments. And then we put in a lot of time. We wrote good scouting reports and we identified opponents' main characteristics or, uh, and then we looked at probability and percentages and, uh, and we do kind of a cost-benefit analysis. And then you got to see and know in the game and control your emotions and really see things accurately. And, and again, I would bounce stuff off of Tui. I would ask her certain things. But, yeah, there's no magic. It's just you develop your eyes. I want to share something with the listeners here. In 2004, um, Jim's Washington team went to the Final Four, and they didn't win the title that year. And most of the team was coming back, and people thought, 
hey, this is great. They got another shot at it. But he made three major changes, three major changes. He took the starting set, the, the middle blocker, who was a senior, going to be a senior, and replaced her with a sophomore. He got a new coach to work on the block because he felt that was weak. And he moved his best player, Sonia Tomasovic, to the opposite side. And I remember reading in the volleyball uh, press that it's things like Jim McLaughlin's lost what, what little he has left of his mind by doing this, and he's destroying the program. That year, you won the national title, and the next year you went back again. That's what adjustments are about, folks. Okay, I understand, Jim, uh, you were at Notre Dame the last three years, and I understand you were asked to speak at a top-rated graduate business class at Notre Dame on the difference between a group and a team. Got nothing to do with volleyball. What did you tell them? Well, they just want to know how a group becomes a team, and I wanted, uh, you know, I always wanted people that wanted to do great things, you know, people that want to be All-Americans, MVPs, playing the Olympics, doctors, coaches, attorneys, teachers, whatever. Um, but I also wanted them to remember this, you know, as, uh, as a college coach, you see and others see you create these numbers for yourself, you know, and I'm talking to these big-time Notre Dame students and they see that you can do great things individually for yourself. But what people really take note of is when you're doing those things and your team has great success. So I started with that and then, you know, I wanted them to know here we are, there's 32 people in this classroom and we're a group. And it's really important that we start becoming a team and forming an identity. And so there are, Groups, teams versus groups, there's roles, responsibilities, there's duties. And not every group becomes a team, Frank, and it's really difficult, so you got to work on it. But duties are more like helping people. You know, you do it out of the goodness of your heart, and I hope all my players would do that. Roles are different. That's about doing your job. And you're not necessarily helping someone. You have a job to do because you're on this team and you got to do your job, regardless of if you like people or you don't like people, you have a role. And that's not the way it is with a group of friends. But that's the way it is when you're on a team. This is bigger than you. And you can expand your role and you can get better. But everybody has a role. You have stars on your team. You have people that carry more of a load. That's not like in a group. And so... Uh, you know, and then in the way you do your job, you will earn respect because people will respect somebody that works their butt off, their mind off, their heart off every day. And then Unfortunately, if you Jim, we are just about out of time here. We will pick this up again in, in another episode down the road. Okay. Uh, this has been a phenomenal hour. If you want to learn more about Jim McLaughlin and his program, you can go to Amazon. You can buy the book, From the Ashes. The Rise of the University of Washington Volleyball Program. Uh, and you'll, it's all laid out right there. So, as we end the show today, we're almost out of time. Thank you, Jim, for coming on and sharing this. This applies across every possible organization. And if you would like more information about Jim and what he's going to be doing, send me a message. I'll make sure it gets to him. If you've missed any portion of this show, you can hear it on demand on a number of places, and I'll put a link up there in about two to three hours. Join us again next week when we discuss another life-altering event. Let me leave you with this. The secret to walking on water is to know where the rocks are. Thanks for listening. We'll see you next week. 
Thank you for tuning into Life-Altering Events. Be sure to join Frank Zakari again next Tuesday at 11 a.m. Eastern Time and 8 a.m. Pacific Time on the Voice America Empowerment Channel. Have a life-changing week. The Good Kind.